You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two participants in the medicinal and recreational cannabis market, one running a company producing the many and varied products that are available, and the other investing in public companies that have exposure to this area. Both have a great deal of knowledge on how this growing sector of the economy is evolving since it became legal in Canada on October 17, 2018, and they have some idea on where it's headed also. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, August 18th, and I'm James Barron with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we're speaking with Neil Morata with Indiva and Bruce Campbell with Stone Castle Investment Management. We'll uh, start with self-introductions. Uh, start with you, Neil. Oh, hi, James. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Indiva. We're a licensed producer uh, in Canada. Uh, we distribute products uh, coast to coast. We're in eight provinces and one territory right now with our products. And uh, really, we're a product company. So we're, we're, we're never really focused on grow or on extraction or making the ingredients. We make final products. And um, our number one selling product is uh, Bang Chocolate uh, that we license out of the U.S. It uh, sells more units in this country than any other cannabis product. So we're quite proud of that. Uh, we also sell pre-rolls and gel capsules, which sell well. Uh, but the big product introduction that's coming up next is uh, the Wana Gummies, which we're very excited about launching into Canada, and they should be in market in September. Wow, great! So just just to be within for abundance of clarity, product is is cannabis, the uh, the Mary Jane, isn't it? And uh, so how how has that how has that evolved over over the last few years? Of course, uh, I'm from BC, so I have an idea that there is this thing. Um, but how how has it gone t- from being you know, illicit to being legal and and uh, and then going into like you say production and actually being able to say you have a product versus you know the other types of things people might say about it. So how does that mean? Well, it was it was a long process to go through the licensing uh, gauntlet with Health Canada. It took us several years. Um, you know, we started this company in 2015. Uh, it took us a better part of two years to get a license just to grow. Um, and then took us another year uh, to get a license to sell, and then another year plus, actually about a year and a half, to get a license to sell extracts, oils, and edibles. Uh, that license we received at the end of January of this year. Mm. So in, in some ways, we joke internally that the business has really only started in January of 2020, but we've been at it for a long time. Uh, but it is quite a process to get licensed. Right. And what's so what's involved? Is it like... Um, experience in the industry, although I'm not sure if you can talk about that too much, or uh, you know the the wherewithal, like your your ability to, to back it with with financial uh, resources and that, or like uh, what's required to get these licenses. Yeah, I mean it, it's a combination of factors, and you know certainly uh, you know experiencing the industry is not necessarily uh, the most important one in terms of getting licensed by Health Canada. Having a clean mm-hmm. uh, criminal background check is is probably more important. Yeah, that helps, and then, yeah. And then you, yeah, you touched on the financing, which is also uh, hugely important. You you really have to have a fully built facility before you're going to get licensed to do anything. So it's it's sort of a lot of capex up front, 
a mm. lot of hurry up and wait, which is uh, quite, you know, proved to be quite a frustrating process, you know, both for management and our investors. Uh, and then, you know, the lucky day comes along, you get your licenses and, and then you're off to the races making and eventually selling product. Uh, so it's a, it is a bit of a slog. Financing is important. Having the right team is important. What we found mm-hmm. at Indiva, though, is that it's not necessarily how much experience or, or passion. Passion for the product matters in terms of the enthusiasm that people bring to work every day. Um, but I think what matters more than that, and, and I think what's helped us is bringing in people actually from the CPG industry, from mature companies you know, that understand how to manage a supply chain, manage teams, produce products at scale, manage a supply chain, squeeze costs out, and you know, deliver really consistent product uh, on a regular basis. That, that, so we've drawn from people that you know, work for very big global CPG companies, and I think that's helped us a lot. Wow. And so CPG's consumer product is not cannabis product, right? Okay, so, <laughs> well, uh, kind of the same now, I guess, but yeah. yeah. It's all about listing. So when, when did you guys go public and how, how, what was the reception like on the investor side? Are they skeptical? Are they expecting a lot out of you? Or how, and how do they deal with this time? Like you say, you, you put a lot of money in, then you hurry up and wait. And how, how, have, uh, how have they reacted to that? Um, well, it's probably a better question for Bruce ultimately, but I think what we've seen, you know, my comment would be overall in the last five years, we've probably seen a bubble inflate and then deflate in the cannabis sector. I mean, I can remember in 2013, 2014, companies would just mention that they're looking at, at, at cannabis and stocks would double or triple. Uh, and now, you know, it, it seems like all the way to the other side of the, of the spectrum where, you know, you put out good news and, and the market says, yeah, that's nice. They, <laughs> it's, it's, it seems like for the large part, a lot of folks have moved on from the sector. I think maybe disappointed given the level of hype mm-hmm. and the results not living up. It was impossible for the results to live up to the level of hype. You know, everyone thought we'd have a $10 billion retail market in Canada. You know, it's more like two, two and a half because it's early. You know, I mean, edibles and vapes, for instance, 2.0 products have been in the market for eight months. Um, so it's going to take time. But the good news is that the market keeps growing. And, and we hope that um, companies, we think like Indiva, that are on a path to being profitable, um, you know, will eventually attract investor interest just like any other uh, company, whether it's a, a cannabis company or otherwise. Yeah, yeah, we had a similar thing. We worked on the liquid alts for about six years, and they thought we'd actually be $20 billion by now, and it's 10 So, yeah, you always tr- things get hyped up, and you expect a lot, but then, uh, yeah, things things will move in its own way, I guess. But uh, it is growing, which is good, and it is out there. So that's 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 great. You, you mentioned Bruce. So let's hear about Bruce uh, and your company. And you've been in investment management for quite a few years. And then um, so w- w- maybe tell us about your background and specifically what you're doing with, uh, with this, with this uh, new fund. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. So I'm the uh, president, uh, founder and portfolio manager, lead portfolio manager at Stone Castle. So we're an investment management firm. We manage uh, a number of different portfolios. And uh, I guess going back to 2013, we started to get interested in the cannabis sector once the government started to go through um, their changes that they were making on the medical side of things. This was even mm-hmm. before uh, we, we found out that there was going to be a recreational market and uh, thought that there was going to be a huge opportunity. So we started to explore it and do some investing. Uh, we invested a little bit in 2013 and then uh, quite started quite heavily in 2014. Uh, obviously, uh, as the election in 2015 rolled around and we started to see legalization, mm-hmm. then the opportunity 
uh, grew. And, and so that at that point in time, we started to uh, put together uh, the Stonecastle Cannabis Growth Fund with our partners, uh, Spartan Investment Management out of Toronto. And uh, we launched that uh, a couple of years ago now. Cool. So how has it changed really with, you mentioned there's medical and there's recreational use. Is it, are the valuations wildly different between the two? I mean, there's a lot of um, uses in, in the, just the medical side. And I was at a conference when it was legalized. Uh, people said, wow, we can actually talk about this now. And they had some plants and things like that because, you know, it was legal. But, um, but it, for, for an investor, is the recreational market a big deal, uh, uh, especially compared to the, to the medical side? I mean, when we originally went into the market, we were thinking that it was going to be a, a medical market only, but that there would be a, a limited number of licenses. And so that they would have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some type of uh, duopoly, monopoly type of environment. And then, you know, when the, when it moved to a recreational market, obviously that opened up huge opportunities. And then, Obviously, as the recreational market continues to expand and new products come on the forefront, much like what Neil's company has, then, uh, you know, we feel that there's going to be a huge crossover as well, where you're getting people who maybe didn't smoke cannabis, but will consume cannabis in an edible format um, and, and use it for recreation or for medicine. And so, you know, to your question about valuations, where we really kind of saw valuations get crazy was when... Um, you know, the recreational market got up and running and, or was just about to get up and running actually. And, uh, you know, new investors were flocking into the, into the uh, sector because they, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. looked at the opportunity that existed and, and, you know, kind of what that meant as far as if, if the entire black market moved over to a legal market, you know, kind of day one, what that, what would that would mean for, for companies from a revenue and from a earnings standpoint. And so the evaluations really got pushed to extremes back when that happened. And since then, you know, they obviously have, have corrected a fair bit and now are uh, much more attractive than they were. Awesome. And so who's using it? Is it the, like, in, in, cause you're used to the whole industry. Is it people that are um, like your typical users, uh, like people that are older, like me, you or or i hate to say it, like our kids using it and stuff like that i mean obviously there, there's there's always access even in the black market um and then in, along the lines of distribution are uh, i'm not even sure like it's not in the lcbo here in, in, in ontario or the saq in quebec is it is it available more through the uh, the government channels or is there like uh private dispensaries and and can you invest in those so that's a big question but let you answer yeah. So, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, who's using it, if you look at the statistics, uh, you know, it's really across the board, um, both, you know, from a black market perspective, but from a legal perspective as well. And I think probably one of the areas that's probably been, you know, the fastest growing has been kind of that baby boomer demographic. And again, mm. they're using both, you know, the dried flour, but they're also, you know, starting to consume other products as well. And so, you know, there is, there is huge opportunity there as you get conversion and then as far as the distribution goes each of the provincial uh, governing bodies has their own distribution system um, right. some of them have their own stores and some of them have you know um, private stores and so there is an opportunity there from a uh, from an investment standpoint to be able to invest in in retail operations that are just strictly uh, retail stores so they call them dispensaries and um, mm-hmm. they're, you know, sort of just like a liquor dispensary or, or sorry, a liquor, uh, distributor. 
outlet. Uh, you know, the same thing what with cannabis. But they're not co-branded like a Wednesday Wendy's uh, KFC or Wendy's Tim Hortons sort of thing, or. Well, they haven't uh, they haven't done that yet, but I mean, there's a few there's a few interesting opportunities there. So there's you know a few of the the, the larger you know the larger dispensaries have started to partner up with with bigger companies. So Elementation Kush Tards partnered up with with a company. Right now, if you looked mm. at the industry, it's still fairly fragmented um, because of the the nature of how you had to apply for licenses and kind of the lottery system, certainly in Ontario, there's a lot of individual um, license holders that are you know, sort of selling one off uh, or have like a one off store. Whereas, um, you know, in, in the West here, there's a few um, opportunities where companies have already started to consolidate and I think they'll probably continue to consolidate. Plus they've also, you know, built from the ground up. So they'll mm. be, you know, probably over the next, uh, you know, probably three to five years, I would imagine there's probably going to be, you know, three to five fairly significant groups that own, you know, a significant number of, div- of dispensaries and then take advantage of those um, those economies of scale by having more than one store versus, you know, the mom and pop that just has a single store. Cool. Well, let's go back to Neil for products. So maybe let me know, Neil, what's your what's kind of your best selling product? What's the one that people are, are really uh, hankering for and, and or, or maybe what's coming, what's coming down the pipe. Like you said, there's gummies and such too, or what, what's, what's kind of the trend now? Um, Cause I know there's, there's all these different kinds of things. There's, there's the oils, there's the gummies, there's the, there's a, there's a flower. I didn't know there's flower. So maybe give us a rundown of the different types of products you guys have. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, by far, I would say our number one seller is bang milk chocolate. Uh, one of the top selling uh, mm. products in the country. Um, and, that, you know, it's probably worth talking a little bit about uh, why we think that's occurred. So Bang uh, is a U.S.-based company. Um, they've been making cannabis chocolate and uh, licensing it out to licensees uh, for the manufacturing and distribution in various states in the U.S. for better part of 10 years. Mm. Uh, and Bang has won basically awards every year for the last 10 years for their products. Uh, so we did an agreement, uh, which we just did a refresh on recently. Uh, it was previously a JV. It's a, just a, a licensing and royalty agreement uh, where we mm-hmm. essentially license the recipes and then we manufacture the products uh, at our facility in London, Ontario and distribute across the country. We don't export anything from Canada at this point. Um, and we don't import any cannabis, uh, mainly because that's illegal. Uh, the way our system oh. is set up. All of the cannabis inputs have to come from Canada. Canada. Uh, we do import the chocolate um, uh, from the U.S. It's the same chocolate that uh, is used by all of the U.S. licensees. So in that sense, mm-hmm. it's a bit of an effort towards uh, global branding where, um, you know, similar to, say, Coca-Cola, where if you went to New York City or if you were in Vancouver, you would expect, you know, buying a can of Coke to taste the same. Um, you know, oh, with this with, Canadian content, that's good. That's right. Yeah. So there's absolutely the cannabis is, you know, we call it powered by Indiva. The cannabis does uh, get infused by us and the products distributed by us. So that's, that's popular. We've introduced new flavors. We have a pure CBD. Um, Well, I guess it's more like a 20 to one. There's a, there's a trace amount of THC in it uh, to act Mm. as a catalyst. Uh, We've also introduced a caramel flavor, which is growing in popularity now. I think it's, uh, I think it's one of their best flavors personally. Um, And then, uh, we also make uh, capsules. 
Um, that distribution is spreading across the country. So we've just got them listed in Alberta recently, hoping to have them listed in BC. It's the number one selling THC capsule online in Ontario. Um, we make pre-rolls that sell fairly well, but it's a smaller part of our business, mainly because um, you know we, we tend to source flour as opposed to growing it ourselves. Um, you know, we think no one's got a monopoly on growing the best product. So we like to source high quality product wherever we can get it. Uh, that was, you know, became prohibitively expensive. Now it's uh, getting better priced. Um, but Wana gummies are coming down the pipeline. That's another license agreement that we signed. And so this has been part of our philosophy of, you know, let's find the best and award, you know, most award-winning products uh, in, in, in their categories and subcategories and bring them to Canada in the sense that, we're, again, we're not importing final product, uh, but we're, we're essentially importing the recipes and the know-how uh, and then making that product in Canada and distributing it uh, across the provinces. The gummy segment is much bigger than, than the chocolate segment. Um, when you look at mature markets and, and gummy sales are rising faster than chocolate at this point. So uh, we're quite excited to launch WANA. Uh, what's special about WANA other than you know, they're the number one edible in America and, and have leading market share in their home market of Colorado. But the gummies themselves are, are pectin-based. Uh, so they're, you know, GMO-free and vegan. Um, so we think it's not just the flavor, but also the quality of the product. We think it'll be very popular in Canada. Uh, and then lastly, maybe not lastly, but for now, uh, on the edible side, we also have a product called Ruby Sugar that we licensed uh, and uh, sort of a sour tart a uh, product called Jules, both both products licensed from a company called Deep Cell, uh, and we hope yeah. to introduce those uh, later this year. So we 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 are, um, you know, quite keen on on the 2.0 products and particularly on edibles, and uh, we think that segment's going to show a lot of growth, uh, probably well above average uh, and sector growth uh, once the variety and quality of products starts growing. It's still pretty limited out there. So I get two questions. One's kind of technical, and you know, so probably go yes or no, and then we got another. It's a bit broader. So are these? This is all federal, right? Is there is there any sort of like like not like beer where you have to have a brewer in each province, and if it's like an IPA from Nova Scotia, it's an import in Ontario. Uh, and second is uh, why why are people buying these? Is it for the CBD for the medicinal properties and that, or is it for the THC? So they're they're, uh, you know, they're having fun with that on a recreational basis. What, what, what are you finding? Uh, well, to answer the second one first, I mean, it's both. Uh, we tend to notice more online sales for, let's say, the primarily or, or pure CBD products uh, versus in-store. Hmm. Um, not, not 100% sure why that is. I, 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 I suspect it's, uh, you know, folks that are know exactly what they want and aren't really interested in going into the store. I'm not sure, but. Oh uh, yeah. They don't need um, a sommelier then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so, um, but you know, whether it's a medical use or a recreational use, we're generally agnostic to that. You know, that's the same quality of product that we make regardless and, and why people use it is, you know, it's obviously, uh, it's obviously up to them. Uh, what was the first question again? I apologize. Uh, if it's, if it's just federal, are there any provincial All boundaries that you can't yeah. We're, yeah, we're federally licensed, so um, we we mm. distribute the product coast to coast in Canada from our factory in London, Ontario. Uh, but we do require uh, separate supply agreements with each province, so that that's how they uh, it all shakes out. Cool. And for Bruce, like again, you see the 
you see pretty much everything in, the, in this market here, I imagine. So I, I was interested to hear about the licensing of that. I didn't fully really appreciate any of that before you started speaking, actually. It's pretty wild. You can get, uh, so a place like, you know, Indiva can get a license and produce stuff up here and, and, and uh, get a, like a known, a known quantity or a known, known product that's working in the U.S. So how do you take that? So because you have licensing costs and then you have the input costs and then you have the sales, which, uh, which have to be forecast out. And, or if it's their own, their own uh, recipe, how do you put that into a valuation proposition for your fund and figure, okay, this stock's trading at five bucks and we figure it's worth 10 or some other number? Like, how, how do you even use some sort of, uh, is it simple dividend discount? And how do you, how, what kind of inputs do you put into that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've done is, you know, when we've built our models, obviously have to factor in you know, what the source of revenue is and the profitability on each of the products. So, you know, in Neil's case where they have a partnership with Bang, that that's factored into that. And, and then, you know, we can figure out or we can project what we think that they're going to do from a sales perspective. And then, you know, so far what the most challenging part of the cannabis industry has been is the multiple you know, there was, and it was much like technology in, you know, kind of the late nineties, trying to determine what the appropriate multiple is mm-hmm. versus where the industry is, uh, has been the most challenge. I mean, going back 18, 24 months, the multiples were, were kind of ridiculous. And you really had to be assuming that on day one, all black market users were going to immediately convert over to, to the legal market. The problem was, is at that point in time, there wasn't enough cannabis that was actually being grown. And then, you know, as you've seen the cannabis supply increase sort of exponentially, um, the black market hasn't come over to the degree that probably a lot of people had anticipated. And so now, you know, stocks have sold off and the multiples have gone the other way. And now that's where, you know, we see the opportunity is that, you know, the whole sector got a flush and now there's companies that are either cash flow positive or just on the cusp of cash flow positive and have, you know, a real solid market behind them and are mm-hmm. picking up market share and are also, uh, you know, getting brand recognition, you know, slowly uh, as they do grow that market share. And I think you alluded to earlier too, there's, there's the idea that maybe may like, like every industry, there's, there's everybody starts to adopt it and there's, you know, everything's a startup. And although some of these were, might have been doing things in the black market and just uh, you know went, went over to the, to the legal side, so they had some expertise. Obviously, it's not entirely a startup, maybe. But I you know so there's there's organic growth, and then there's the growth by acquisition. Um, how do you how do you see that playing? Are there going to be more players into this? Uh, because you're like you're, you're right. Like I think actually we met about that time when the the uh, the, the uh, PE rates were getting pretty kind of a nosebleed territory and. Uh, uh, where is this market going to go? And, and is there any correlation to the broader markets or is it just kind of doing its own thing? Uh, well, interestingly enough, there hasn't been, you know, historically a lot of uh, correlation to the broader markets. Uh, but now that's that's kind of changed. You know, this would be what I would consider to be kind of uh, a, a, a certainly, you know, for lack of a better term, a risk on type of market. So hmm. as even as sort of defensive as it is, and especially when you look at what's gone on during COVID, um, where sales have actually increased 
quite significantly. Um, it's always been sort of identified as, you know, sort of a riskier market. And I think that's has a lot to do with the fact that there hasn't been the institutional support there. And now, mm. now you are starting to get that, you know, institutional support from a, uh, from an M&A standpoint, you know, I think what you're probably going to end up seeing is some consolidation. There's been, you know, a huge overbuild of supply. There's a lot of uh, facilities now that are being shut down or mothballed because there's too oh, much wow. cannabis being grown right now. And so you're going to see a real shakeout on, you know, who has the capital and who has the ability to sell their products and survive versus the ones who... Um, who aren't in that position. And you'll probably see, you know, two companies that, you know, maybe are marginal as far as being profitable or even sustainable join together to try to, you know, get the economies of scale to grow on a bigger scale and to be able to compete on a bigger scale by lowering their costs. So mm. you should see a fair bit here in the next, um, you know, probably 24 months from a consolidation standpoint. You're also going to see, you know, they'll, the sector was capital was just so accessible. If you go back sort of 24, 36 to even sort of 12 months ago, so accessible and now it's not. And so, you know, as a function, you're going to see uh, a bunch of consolidation on that front as well. What about for the, uh, you mentioned there's not much in the way of the institutional investors in that, which it could be a boon or, or not, but, uh, What's the capacity? Like, how much money can get into these companies without it really starting to move it? Because you're, like, I'm not even sure what the market cap. What's the market cap of the industry and of of players like like Indiva and some of the larger ones? Like, can they can it handle a few billion coming into this, or is it more like a bit of a cottage industry now as as it grows and and really uh, evolves? You know, it's not unlike other investing. If you were to look at you know the opportunity set in Canada versus you know, globally. And right now we've just been kind of talking Canada, but, you know, if you look at the U S there's, you know, some significant operators down in the U S as well. And they're actually taking over as far as market cap from Canadian companies. And so that's where, you know, a big, a big direction and a big push for institutional support will come. That being said in Canada, there is, there's lots of room in Canada still. I mean, if you look at a company like like, um, you know, Canopy, which is the largest in Canada, you know, they have, they do have operations mm -hmm. internationally. And so if you think that this is going to be a, continue to be a, an international expansion opportunity down the road. And that as what we've seen in Canada happens, you know, in the U S in Europe, in Asia, and if, you know, Canopy is able to take their expertise, then they're able to invest. And obviously that that's why someone like Constellation came into Canopy. There'll be, you know, nichier opportunities in Canada, and then there'll be, you know, sort of one or two, you know, kind of major players that, that the institutions come, come into, and then there's going to be U.S. opportunities as well. And then, you know, we haven't really seen it yet, but there's going to be an emergence probably in, in Europe and, and also in Asia. Yeah. So in Europe, I just think of the Netherlands, which is pretty obvious, uh, but who else is active in, in Europe? Uh, what, are, what are the countries? Is this, is it similar to Canada? I don't even think of anything. So this would be really great. And then in Asia, uh, is this, is this a trend that's taken hold in Asia as well? I, I haven't even thought about that. Yeah. So if you look at, um, you know, if you look at Europe, there's, there's countries that have already 
you know, work towards a medical program. So a company like Germany, they have a medical program to sell cannabis, but they, they're, they've been really, uh, slow on any, um, home growing, uh, production. So right now they're importing it. It's been extremely difficult to import, mm -hmm. but the price that they get is multiples higher than what they get in Canada because of the supply demand issues. There's other countries, you know, like Portugal as an, an example where there's production facilities that are being put in place and, and, you know, they're going to, they're going to grow. And the thought is, is that eventually what you'll end up seeing is that you'll see, you know, certain regions of Europe where they grow it, and then it'll get distributed throughout sort of the entire EU. And, you know, right now they're just, from what I've seen, most of it is just strictly dried flour and, and some type of oil. Um, but you'll end up with all those other products as well. CBD um, products are a little bit more popular in, you know, sort of pockets of Europe. So if you look right. at uh, some of the Scandinavian countries, they have a fairly established CBD market already. And then if you look over in Asia, there's, you know, kind of a number of countries that are looking at what the opportunity might be. And everything that's gone on with COVID, both from a standpoint of how much increase in sales we've seen in North America, but as well, you know, all the governments have spent all this money to try to stimulate economies and keep things, you know, kind of moving and they're going to have to pay that back. And if you sort of look at history, you know, back in, you know, 1933 in the U S after, you know, depression, they legalized alcohol. And part of that was to gain access to that revenue. And it might be, you know, sort of similar, yeah globally with cannabis is that now they take a look and say, well, if we legalize this industry, we're going to move it from black to legal and we're going to be able to capitalize on a whole new tax revenue that we haven't had before to, to, to pay off all these bills that we have. Well, the, the never ending tax, uh, tax man, that's great, great news. <laughs> how about, uh, how about you, Neil? Do you guys, uh, have any plans on world domination doing stuff outside of Canada or is it, is it mostly state of the home jurisdiction and go from there? Um, yeah, I don't know about world domination, but, but, uh, I think our focus has been on Canada so far. Um, I think we're, you know, we're a smaller company. You talked about market cap before, you know, our market cap is well under a hundred million. So, um, you know, and capital is tougher now than it used to be. Bruce is absolutely correct about that. Uh, so our, our focus really is domestically. We think, you know, the overall Canadian market's about two and a half billion going to 10. Uh, we still believe it'll it'll get that big, and you know people don't believe that's a realistic number. I would say, you know, we do closer to twenty billion of beer, wine, and spirit sales on an annual basis in this country. So you know, can cannabis be half as big? Uh, I would say yes. You know, the tobacco market in Canada is more than ten billion, quite a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so though, you know, but it is going to take time to get there. Uh, then within that. You know, not our entire focus, but a big part of our focus is uh, the edible market, which is still under 5% of the total market. And if you look at, you know, it's California or Colorado or other mature states, that'll probably get closer to 15% over time. So we think uh, there's huge growth potential here in Canada. Uh, we don't want to um, start investing more capital to look at the rest of the world uh, until we're profitable here. Uh, so maybe we're we're conservative to a fault, but you know the whole reason um, we started this business was to generate a great return for investors and free cash flow, uh, not to just build a big footprint. So our focus will be here. Um, 
you know, for the time being. But, you know, that doesn't mean we ignore other markets. I mean, I think the UK market is particularly interesting as it relates to CBD. Um, and, uh, you know, there is some thought. We had a bit of a false start looking at Europe a couple of years ago. Uh, that didn't cost us any capital. But, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it's definitely on the radar, but I don't think it's anything that we'll, we'll look at investing any funds into either this year, maybe not even next. Yeah, that makes sense. Jeez, that reminds me of, um, I, I spoke with Sam Safe, um, who's, uh, <laughs> who's famous for his airplane ads. And uh, back in 2006, it was about a $6 billion ETF industry. He said, no, it's going to be $100 billion soon. It'll be $100 billion. I was like, wow, that's that's kind of insane, but, you know, if anybody's going to do it. And about 10 years later, it was, and now it's like 170. So, um, yeah, I think just seemed to grow on their own af- after a while. So, mm-hmm. it's, a, yeah, it's interesting you have both the, the CBD and the, the THC to uh, to kind of push things along and different, 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 entirely different markets. Uh, and Bruce mentioned there, there's a lot of uh, cannabis on the market now and the prices have moved. So, has this, has does the white market for cannabis affect Okay, is it tied to the black market, or is that an entirely different different buyer? And and how has like how much has it gyrated, like the, the price of your inputs there, Neil? Um, or if you're growing your own, maybe just the, your cost of production. Maybe just go through maybe some of the the economics between the the pricing and the supply here. Sure, uh, I mean, you know, as far as our input costs go, you know, Bruce uh, is absolutely correct. The the amount of flour that's been grown and is in finished goods inventory and also, you know, what I would just call raw material inventory. And similarly with oil and distillate, uh, we've seen those inventories build. And so, yeah, absolutely. The prices have come down, you know, at the retail level, I think a little bit, but also on the input side, you know, our, our cost for distillate is down, uh, you know, probably by 70% in a year. Oh, wow. Uh, so that will have going forward a big impact on our profitability on our edibles, um, you know, maybe much more so than on the flower side. Uh, you know, in terms of the illicit market versus the legal market, um, look, I think there's a lot of cross currents there. I, I wouldn't say our only goal is to get people to convert over from the illicit market to the legal market. Uh, but, you know, if you look at some of the data, it's, you know, 80% of the market is still in the illicit market. Um, I think wow. part of that is price, although not so much anymore. I mean, there's a lot of SKUs on the OCS where you can buy, you know, a 28 gram bag at between four and five dollars a gram. That's a very competitive price. Um, you know, with the amount of competition in this industry, you know, being so fierce, uh, the quality of the product is is doing nothing but getting better. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the last piece of the puzzle is really convenience. You know, if if it's a better product and the price is better. You know, the last piece of the puzzle is how easily can can folks who are of, of age, you know, get their hands on it. And, you know, this is an area where I think we saw what, you know, hopefully would have been a longer term change uh, during COVID where, you know, Ontario in particular, they allowed stores to deliver direct to the customer for a period of time. And they just shut that mm-hmm. back down. And I think that's unfortunate because. Um, well, that's a know, competition, when, too, is the, the guy coming to you. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, if, if in Ontario, for example, I mean, Alberta's got over 500 stores, Ontario still has just north of 100. Uh, that is not right. You know, the, the, the consumption, total consumption in Alberta versus Ontario is pretty much even, give or take. Alberta's a little bit ahead of Ontario. When you look at, say, beer sales, Ontario is far beyond Alberta in total sales. Oh, uh, wow. And, and so, 
um, you know, and that's per capita and absolute because of the bigger population. So mm-hmm. in Ontario, we absolutely need more stores. Um, you know, if you live in downtown Toronto, you might think, well, look, there's there's five stores I can walk to. But if you live in a more remote area of Ontario where you've got to drive 30 minutes to a store, your only other alternative other than, again, going to the illicit market, which you know, <laughs> may deliver right to your door same day, um, you know, is to order from the OCS and wait two or three days for the product to show up. So I, I think I think if we can get that right, where people can get same day delivery, you know, in under say two hours, um, that's going to, you know, again coupled with a competitive pricing and a high quality product, I think then you'll see people switch on mass because there's very little reason to stay in the illicit market at that point. Yeah, and I guess you don't have to worry about fentanyl and all those other things that get into it. Uh, you can get your yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Getting all yeah. the other crap. Yeah. Well, there. that's true and fair. I think part of the issue is people that have been in the illicit market for some time have said, well, you know, I've been using this product for a long, long time and, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily tested and I'm fine. Or that's that's the general comment that, you know, no one's dying from this. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, again, that's that's not, it's not to say safety is not important. It's hugely important. Um, and we've all probably have anecdotally some third party stories of people that had bad experiences with cross contamination, et cetera. You mentioned fentanyl. It's pretty ugly. Uh, but, you know, on, on the other hand, you can't just say buy this and pay more and 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 it'll be less convenient, but it's safer. I don't think that's a strong enough argument. I mean, I think the evidence is in that's not a strong enough argument to get people to switch. You know, the product has to be as good, competitively priced. And I think, you know, we can't underestimate that convenience factor. People have to have fairly you know, fairly easy access. It doesn't have to be one on every corner like a Tim Hortons, but, um, you know, I, I live in Ottawa and there's about half a dozen stores in the city. Um, you know, there's, there's over a hundred stores in Ontario, but there's over a thousand, you know, beer and liquor stores in Ontario. So we've got a long way to go to make it more accessible. Very cool. And how about you, Bruce? Where do you see this app uh, just going? Because you say you started the fund a few years ago. Uh, you know, you've had some some experience in the market. It's gone through some some gyrations, and we'll obviously continue like all markets do. Uh, where do you see uh, this cannabis market, and I guess uh, by extension your your fund going? And then are there are there areas where you're looking to to take advantage of other opportunities? Like what, what's kind of the hot spot? Yeah, so we you know since we launched the fund, we talked about this being probably one of the fastest growing sectors globally over the next decade. And I still think that that's going to be the case. You know, if you see, you know, kind of what's happened in Canada, the uh, the sales certainly haven't been, you know, maybe as strong as some expected. But if you look at the percentage growth, it's, you know, kind of off the charts in Canada. Similar in the U.S. And I mean, not all states are legal yet um, from a recreational or even from a, a medical standpoint. So as you continue to see that open up, there's huge opportunity there. And then, as we mentioned, the entire world is is an opportunity as well because, you know, obviously we have expertise here in Canada and Canadian companies, some of them are very well capitalized and have the opportunity to, to really take advantage of their expertise elsewhere. Uh, you know, they've gone mm-hmm. through tons of growing pains and and then also dealt with, you know, as Niels mentioned, the, the legislation and the regulation to get licensed to know exactly what's needed and and. You know, I bet you if you could ask Neil and say, hey, you know, would you do things differently in a couple of places? Yeah, I think he, he probably could have skipped the, you know, some of the wait time just by knowing the process a little bit better uh, after the fact. So, you know, there's going to be Canadian companies that really capitalize on this. So, you know, we think that Canada is just 
sort of, you know, the very first inning and there's opportunities, you know, in Canada, obviously with the, you know, we, we sort of count the second inning as being all these uh, extracted and edible products. And then the U S is a huge opportunity. And then beyond that, I mean, we, we haven't really even seen stuff happening yet to any big degree in, in Europe or Asia, but we know that they have a desire and that, you know, there's already a huge cannabis market there. So we mm-hmm. think that there's going to be a, a big opportunity there as well. Wow. This has been great. Uh, I can't believe how much I didn't know about cannabis before we started this podcast and uh, God, I hope we can have you guys on another one sometime soon. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, it's been great. And uh, we'll uh, definitely look forward to speaking with you again. Yeah. Pleasure. Thanks for having us on. Yep. Thanks very much, guys.